Well, firstly, I thought I'd lost my sermon, but I wrote the notices on the back of it. So that's fine. Couldn't find it. I watch um, programs on um, iPlayer when I'm pootling about at home. And at the moment, I've been watching The Monarch of the Glen. I don't know if you remember that. Lots of mountains, lochs. It's wonderful. And in a recent episode, there was a challenge between two pretenders to the lairdship of Glen Vogel. The first, the current laird, as yet unthroned, who is the illegitimate son of the previous now deceased 23rd laird, Hector MacDonald. In preparing for the enthronement of Paul Bowman as laird, the proctor who oversees these things discovers that in fact Hector's brother, Donald MacDonald, has a stronger claim to the lairdship. Are you keeping up with this? Donald claims the clan ring and sets about exercising his ancient right by exacting a 20% tax on any profits of businesses on the estate and then pressing for back land dues that have never been collected by his predecessors from the crofts on his land. It's scintillating stuff, this. Donald, in the seat of power, seems to be getting away with an outrageous set of decisions and lining his own pockets. This goes too far, and Paul renews his claim by a challenge to Donald. The first of the three tests is a race carrying heavy weights. Donald, who is much older and less fit than Paul, engages a champion, which is allowed under the ancient rules, who narrowly wins when Paul stumbles in a boggy part of the course that Donald has created by pouring several gallons of water on it. The second, and it turns out conclusive, test is a quiz about clan history. Donald wins despite knowing little because he has acquired a copy of the questions and answers in advance. He is declared the laird. Being monarch of the Glen, of course, it ends well, and we find that the only reason Donald took on the lairdship was to give Paul the self-belief and desire for his destiny that Donald thought he lacked. He had played the bad laird so that Paul could fulfill the good led role after all, and all lived happily ever after. But bad lads exist in real life, and often seem to cling on to power they crave so much. There's a saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. A desire for power and preferment and getting one's own way is the subject of our passage from Matthew today, and our title is Kingdom Humility. We find Jesus on the journey to Jerusalem, and therefore leading to the events of Holy Week. Jesus takes the twelve disciples aside, and again, we think for the fourth time, explains to them what will unfold. In Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Romans because they cannot execute him. They will mock him, flog him, and crucify him. This is, as you can imagine, shocking news. And it's given here in more detail than on the previous occasions. The general reaction to Jesus' words from the disciples is not recorded. Even the promise that though he die, that he will be raised again by God is not enough to cushion the blow of this deathly prophecy. This is also 
a description of servant leadership, that Jesus would go to his death for others. Sometime later, we're told that James and John's mother approaches Jesus. She approaches him in reverence, kneeling down, for she is about to ask a big favour. She asks that they sit on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom to come. In doing so, she recognises his place on the throne as king in the centre. She also knows that on the immediate left and right are special, privileged and responsible places. The second and third in the kingdom, we might say. It would be a promotion from merely one of the disciples. If this kingdom will be so powerful, why should the sons of Zebedee not be up there running the show, she might be thinking. She wants her sons to be above everyone else. Just like Bathsheba wanted Solomon to be above the others when David passed on his inheritance. Just as Jacob claimed Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew when he was hungry, and Rebekah contrived with Jacob to get Isaac's blessing by deception. Just as Joseph foresaw his brothers bowing down to him and boasted about it, leading to his dispatch to Egypt. Just as Cain killed his brother because Abel had received favour for doing the right thing. Now the wife of Zebedee boldly goes to the master and asks that favour be bestowed on her sons. A story as old as the Hebrew nation, as old as the world itself unfolds. Can I be given a leg up to climb that greasy pole that leads to the top? Jesus' answer is not what she expected. You don't know what you're asking. In essence, you think this is about advancement, riches, and power, but you do not realize the cost of this calling. Can you drink from the cup I'm about to drink, he says? Now, the idea of the cup in Old Testament is a motif for suffering. I am going to suffer for this kingdom yet to come. Jesus does not refer back to what he had just recently shared with the twelve. He could have done. The sons have been told, should the mother have known, they have been told four times what will happen, but it seems they don't get it. Otherwise, surely, their mother would know. In fact, their answer belies their cluelessness. We can, they say. Jesus affirms that they will drink, but this time from my cup. This could refer to the persecution that they would face in the early church. And in fact, both of these disciples would, fight, fight, would face exile in years to come. But it could also look forward to the cup of remembrance, the wine that would come to represent the blood of Jesus that he would spill to save them and all believers. Jesus will drink from a cup of suffering And they will remember that by drinking wine, as we do, from the cup of remembrance. Jesus then explains they are asking the wrong person. It is God who is in charge of these appointments. 
The Son serves the will of the Father. He is the servant king. Word gets out. And the other ten find out what Zebedees have been up to. And they are indignant. So if Jesus was disappointed with the original audacious request, he is also disappointed with the reaction. Because in their indignation, they, the other ten, are demonstrating that they too covet the top place at the table. Are their motivations any better than the other two? Why should they have more than me, they're saying. Jesus calls them all together, all twelve. And he rebukes and instructs them in calling, in leadership, and in the exercise of power and responsibility. He says four things. Firstly, the Romans exercise superior authority and lord it over others. He then says, this is not a model for you. Not so with you, he says. The third thing he says is the kingdom requires servant leaders, those who are bond slaves, Having no resources of your own, be entirely dependent on the master, Jesus. And Jesus is the model of this, who came not to be served, but to serve. Then finally, he says that Jesus was to pay a ransom on that cross, to free others. This is your model. The avarice and the power hunger and the desire to get their own way that the disciples were demonstrating was in direct opposition to the way of the kingdom, serving the other, not the self. We see echoes of this in the teaching in the upper room, captured by John in his gospel. The washing of the feet as an act of service. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Love one another. Obey what I command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Remain in me and I will remain in you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And take heart, I have overcome the world. The sense that servant leadership is needed in the church surrounds us in a world that is increasingly rejecting Jesus and his gospel. That is why we want to ask people this Christmas, who is Jesus to you? The answers we get will often not describe the Jesus we find revealed in here in the Bible. And that's okay, because from there we can have a conversation. This is the true revelation of the true Jesus, allied with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now the church, the Church of England in particular, has been through a period of discernment for the last 40 years and very intensely over the last six on one presenting issue. The outside world has for nearly a decade revised the meaning of civil marriage. Churches such as the Church of Scotland and the Episcopal Church in Scotland, the Church in Wales, United Reformed Church and the Methodist Church have all revised their teaching and practice and have uh, blessings or marriage for same-sex couples. The Church of England, through the Living in Love and Faith process, has since 2020 been discussing and debating a response to same-sex couples in stable and faithful relationship 
Many are in civil partnerships or civil marriages. And before we go any further in this, we must recognise that debates in Synod and anything here is often talking about people. And in Synod in particular, those people must feel like the football in the middle of the game. The place in which the church has got to is both problematic and convoluted. Being an Episcopal church, we have bishops who lead on the spiritual direction of the church. The House of Bishops has been trying since January this year to square two things. Firstly, maintaining the doctrine of marriage of the church, and that is unchanged and stated as between one man and one woman for life. The second thing they've been trying to do is to offer prayers and services to same-sex couples to mark significant stage in their relationship. After several iterations, including in July, where basically the feedback was, this is very hard and we haven't made any progress, the House of Bishops presented the latest ideas to Synod this week. And questions have been asked about what's being prepared. Firstly, what is the theological and specifically scriptural justification for them? Some have asked, are they even legal? What protections will there be for clergy who both do and don't offer these prayers? What or who is being blessed? Technically, the answer to that is that each person will be, but not the relationship. And has the doctrine of marriage actually been bent so far as to actually having been changed by introducing new liturgy? using the principle that the Church of England follows, which is what the Church prays, is what the Church believes. Synod is a place where many questions are asked and answers are sought in debates. The conduct of that this week has left many angry, confused and frustrated on both sides. Bishops led by archbishops hold much power over the agenda and what is shared on the floor of the chamber and that power, many believe, was misused this week. The proposal to welcome the commendation of prayers without guidance, which is to follow. The further guidance on clergy ministry is whether they can uh, be married or not, same-sex clergy can be married or not, is also to follow. And finally, the pastoral assurance for clergy who do and don't use the prayers is even further down the line. Meanwhile, standalone services, which would be specific to a couple, are, it's thought, to be offered on an experimental basis early in the new year, with a view to Synod approving them in 2025. However, the current Synod, if you follow these things, the votes were very, very close. It was almost 50-50. The current synod is unlikely to have the two-thirds support to allow this to happen. So that little which is being offered by synod through the House of Bishops may well be taken away again in two years' time. Although the motivation is to care for this specific group of believers, the leadership face accusations of being manipulative, underhand, and lacking transparency or cogent logic. It has left even the most fervent supporters bruised 
and the result is a first step with so much continued uncertainty and little sense of how this circle can be squared. It is born of a pastoral heart, and the leadership of the church has come across as belligerent and stubborn, not servant-hearted, and seems to have abandoned the tenets of historical Anglicanism and received uh, and the received theological understanding to achieve the stated aims, come what may. But, and this is the big but, there but for the grace of God go all of us. I think there is more James and John in all of us for even the envy of the other ten than we would possibly like to admit. So my request to you today, Christchurch, is that you always hold me to account of the methods and motivation of my leadership. I ask your help to hold the leadership of this church, the diocese and the Church of England, to those principles of servant-heartedness, seeking his resources, not ours, and always seeking his answers, all for his glory, in his time. For the instruction, the rebuke, and the model is clear in this guidebook that God has given us. This is the standard in the Bible, and we need to hold ourselves to it. Let's pray. Father, these are indeed uncertain times. And the conversations in public are difficult ones. We pray for your wisdom. And we pray for our leaders. Not only about what they say and what they do, but how they do it. And we pray that here in Christchurch, we can always go back to Jesus' servant-hearted model. to serve you and to serve others and not to serve ourselves. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.